Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, we have amazing guests join us to share their stories, their successes, yes, their failures, their lessons, and their life. You're going to hear some remarkable stories on here from some inspiring individuals. But more than that, you're going to hear some real ideas that you can take back and that you can apply in your own life. Before we get started today, I invite you to check out our Facebook or Twitter like our pages, follow us there, get inspiration throughout the week. You can learn more about our blogs, our vlogs, our quotes, our reflections. If you love the podcast, you're going to love the daily inspiration as well. Check it out at johnolearyinspires.com. Again, that's johnolearyinspires.com. That's also where we keep all of our show notes. And you're going to want to know about the show notes from today's because I get to introduce you to my friend. His name is Mike Robbins. He's the author of three books. They are Focus on the Good Stuff, Be Yourself, Everyone Else is Already Taken, and his latest, Nothing Changes Until You Do. He's an expert in teamwork, emotional intelligence, and the power of appreciation and authenticity. He delivers keynotes. He is a storyteller. He's an inspiration. He's a friend. And we are lucky to have him here with us on the Live Inspired Podcast. So, my friends, buckle up on the interstates at home, wherever you're tuning in today, because you're going to need it. You're going to need a journal and open mind and open heart. Welcome onto our show, into our community, my friend, and then yours, Mike Robbins. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thanks for having me, man. It's an honor. I'm excited to uh, get to talk to you and everybody listening. Well, man, we are thrilled to have you on. And for those who heard uh, my little introduction, yes, you are an author and a speaker. Tell us, give us a snapshot, though, of not only what you speak on or write about, but tell us also a little bit about your family life. Oh, well, I love that question because I get to talk a little bit about the most important people in my life. I'm married to an amazing woman named Michelle, and we've been together for 17 years now, and we've got two girls. Samantha, who's 11, and Rosie, who just turned nine. So that, uh, as you know, as a father, that's uh, that's the whole ball game, so to speak, as I can say as a former baseball totally. player. But, you know, I'm honored and grateful that I get to uh, – I, I live here in the San Francisco Bay Area and, uh, you know, just get a chance to travel around the country and sometimes around the world and speak about really important topics to me like appreciation and authenticity and – being a championship team. So it's, uh, I feel like I used to feel back when I was playing baseball, like I I can't believe I get paid to do this. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know how you feel in regards to that. And and we are going to unpack some of these topics that you're so passionate about. But I think it's always interesting for me, and I, I believe our friends listening, to understand the background of the individuals who are experts in this space. It uh, it, it kind of layers the individual and it, it shares some of the context and the color for what they speak on and why they share about it, why their heart's so passionate about it. So let, let, let's back the train all the way up, Mike. It's been said that everybody has a story. It's mm-hmm. just not the story they're telling the world. 
you have a story too, man. You got a lot of great stories. Take me back to childhood. What what, what was growing up like for little Mike Robbins? Um, <clears throat> well, you know, like like a lot of people, I've had a lot of a lot of highs and some lows too. I grew up, uh, you know, in Oakland, California, just you know, right across the bay from San Francisco, and. Um, you know, my parents split up when I was three, so I was raised by my mom as a single mom. She never remarried. I had an older sister, Lori, and that, you know, that had a significant impact on my life. I mean, I had a really happy and fun childhood, but there were definitely challenges, some of which I sort of understood and was able to appreciate as I got older and, you know, sort of figured out some of kind of what was going on. But my, my big passion and my big outlet for all of that at that time um, was playing baseball. Love playing baseball and started, uh, you know, t-ball when I was seven, and I was pretty good at it. And come from, you know, a family of, of sports fans, particularly baseball fans. My mom was actually a PE teacher, so she was the one who actually taught me how to play baseball. And uh, <clears throat> I stayed pretty focused and passionate on that all the way through school, uh, and ended up getting drafted out of high school by the New York Yankees. So before we uh, celebrate the pinstripes, and I realize you you may uh, opt out of the pinstripes. We'll get there in a moment. <laughs> You mentioned your mom's a PE teacher. She's the one that taught you yep. baseball, which strikes me as being a, a bit surprising because most yep. of us learn that from our dad. So right. um, um, tell me about your dad. Well, my dad, you know, so my dad was in radio and television, actually. My dad started in radio when he was 14 years old. And um, he actually, you know, I did. My folks split up at, when I was three, and my dad was around and, <clears throat> and in my life. Until about the age of seven, you know, we sort of did the every other weekend thing. My dad suffered from bipolar disorder, hmm. which as a kid, of course, I had no idea what that meant. Um, did you know he had it as a kid or, or when did I, you find I out? I did. Well, in those days, they called it manic depression or my dad would get depressed. And and I didn't exactly know what that meant, but I knew it was something that was, um, you know, significant and, and challenging. But hard, you know, and in the, I mean, this is, I was born in 1974, so like in the early 80s, when my dad loses his job mm-hmm. and, you know, checks into the hospital, you know, trying to be explained as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old kid, like your dad's sick, but he's not sick, like with a disease yes. or cancer or, a, you know, some heart ailment or something that I probably my seven or eight-year-old brain could have understood. It was hard to understand. Um, and then that preceded a, a, a span of about five years, John, where my dad was in and out of hospitals and halfway houses and, you know, at times not in communication with us for six, eight, ten months at a time. And, you know, looking back now, I have an enormous amount of empathy and compassion mm-hmm. for my father and the pain he must have been in because he loved us dearly. He just was, he was sick and they were having a hard time figuring out how to medicate him and how to get him the, the treatment and the support that he needed. So, you know, and those are, as you know, as a, as a kid, as a young man, I mean, from, from the age of about seven until about 13, um, some pretty significant years of my life where my father wasn't around and, and really wasn't able to show up. And, and so among many things that my mother stepped in to teach me and, and help me with was, you know, playing sports. And she was the one out in the front yard playing catch with me and, you know, doing all, taking me to all my games and all my practices and all that stuff, which, again, at the time, I didn't think that much of it. That was yeah. just who my mom was. But, of course, looking back now and, and being a parent myself and knowing how challenging it is, even when both parents are around, I just have an enormous amount of appreciation and, and respect for my mother and everything she did. Mike, Beth, my wife, Beth and I collapsed into bed last night at about 9.47. <laughs> and, dude, I mean, we're doing this together. 
yeah. we have jobs that are both meaningful, but also they, they support our families at a wonderful level. Our children are healthy, and it's exhaust. It is absolutely yeah. exhausting. Your yep. mother, as a school teacher, PE teacher, m- mother of these babies, in the front yard, throwing the ball with you, driving you to practice and games, she, she must have been a special person. You know, she was. And the interesting thing is that she had been a PE teacher sort of in her previous life. And then when she had me and my sister, um, she was home for a few years. And then once she and my dad split up, my mom actually, instead of going back into teaching, um, started her own business, which again, I mean, you and I can relate to this as someone, you know, starting my own business. And wow, she did that because, and she, she ended up being a, <clears throat> a wholesale sales rep for a number of different lines of accessories and jewelry and things because she saw an opportunity, but also wanted to have flexibility so she could make money to support us, even though things were a bit lean, but more importantly, she wanted to be able to show up when she needed to show up. And she said to me many years later, like, I didn't want to have some boss tell me when I could see my kids or not, or when I could be there for activities and events. So I decided to sort of take matters into my own hands, which for my mother took a lot of courage because my mother was really passionate about a lot of things and even about her business. But admittedly, and she would have mentioned this later on in her life as well, was not really a business person. So it was very challenging for her, but she was more committed to being around and available for us than doing something that was necessarily easy or comfortable for her. You know, it's cool when you look back at parents through the lens of being a parent yourself, you you appreciate so much more. And not only are you a dad, um, you're a business owner among a whole lot of other roles that your mother assumed. What what do you think the number one thing outside of throwing the ball and using that bat, what was it that your mom really taught you about life? You know, that's a great question. I think my mother... um, there was a certain amount of determination and grit that my mom had. And so I learned that from her, both by watching her, but also I think she instilled that in me. And the, another big thing that my mom taught me was she had an enormous amount of passion and enthusiasm, particularly for me and Lori, my sister. Um, but it was like, you show up for people, you, you're there, you cheer. You know, my mom was like, she went to all my games and it wasn't, you know, she enjoyed it and was excited about it, but there was this level of passion and enthusiasm that she had for me and for my sister. And, and then later on in life, I saw this for friends and other family members in ways that she would do this. I mean, she was so focused on and committed to us, particularly when we were growing up. But I really think that <clears throat> that's something that I learned from her and I took from her and think about both as a parent, but also just in my life and how I try to be as a friend and, you know, a spouse and, and, and all the other important roles that I play. Well, you mentioned something you played, you played ball, you played at a high level and coming out of high school, Mike, you're drafted by the New York Yankees. You know, I I know it's, it's not the St. Louis Cardinals, but it's a pretty significant (laughs) organization. I know know what a big Cardinals fan you are (laughs) and everybody in in the St. Louis area. Well, you know, the funny thing is though, and someone mentioned this the other day when I was doing an interview about the Yankees, I got drafted by the Yankees in 1992. And so in 92, as great as the New York Yankees are as an organization, they were sort of in the middle of a pretty Mm -hmm. long lull for the Yankees, right? They hadn't been in the world series since 81. They ended up a few years later going on that crazy run over five or six years where, you know, they won a bunch of World Series, but I ended up turning the Yankees down because I had, you know, gotten an opportunity to play baseball in college at Stanford University, which is about an hour from where I grew up uh, here in California. I still live in the Bay Area, and, uh, 
you know, and that had been a real dream. I mean, I wanted to go to school. Education was really important to my mother and in our family. And Stanford's got a great baseball program. And so from the time I was very, very small, I mean, this will give you a sense to the kind of kid that I was. John, I, I went to my mother at about seven years old, and I said to my mom, Mom, what's the best college in the country? And she says, Harvard. My mom grew up on the East Coast, mm-hmm. and she's like, Harvard, you know. And I said, okay, I'm going to go to Harvard, and I'm going to play baseball. And people thought, oh, isn't that cute? And then I was on the playground telling some kids, I'm going to go to Harvard and play baseball. And some kid tells me, Harvard's baseball team isn't any good. And then I'm like mortified. What do you mean they're not good? It's supposed to be the yeah. best school in the country. So I go back to my mom and I said, Mom, what's the best school in the country that has the best baseball team? And she said, well, that would probably be Stanford. And I was like, okay, then I'm going to go to Stanford. And like that's, I, I was seven when I decided that. Yes. And I didn't really know what that meant, but that was like, you know, so that had been a, a goal. My, my big goal, of course, was to make it to the major leagues, but like, I really wanted to play in college, and getting an opportunity to play baseball at Stanford was, a, was an absolute dream come How, true for me. Mike, how hard of a call was that? You're a kid, you're a 17-, 18-year-old kid. The Yankees have called. Yeah. Man, it sounds to me to be pretty exciting to say, I'm, I'm on the next flight, and I know it's going to be low A ball, but what, what an opportunity. Right. What, um, why did you choose ultimately not to go in that, in that direction, and, and do you have any regrets about it? Well, I don't actually. For I mean, there's a couple reasons. I had... I had, I had sustained a minor arm injury my senior year in high school that wasn't bad enough at the time to keep me out of playing, but I knew about it, as did my coaches and the doctors, but nobody else really. And so that was the, the inkling and the reality of, like, I was a pitcher, and, like, you know, you're one bad pitch or one arm injury away from the whole thing being over. So there was a rational part of it. It's like, I want to get my education. But the truth is, John, the difference in baseball, other, you know, different than other sports, like you get drafted out of high school or even out of college, there's a long road between yes. getting drafted and signing and making it to the big leagues. And in baseball, there's so many variables that the truth of the matter is, even, even if you're a superstar top prospect, you know, think about, I mean, I don't follow the Cardinals closely enough, but I imagine over the last five or six years, maybe there's been one or two superstar prospects for the Cardinals that have been called up that are 21, yes. 22 years old. But most of the guys that make it to the big leagues, when they get there, they're 23, 24, 25 years old. So you're going to spend four or five years in the minor leagues anyway. Um, so going to a place like Stanford that's such a top program, I w- if I spent three or four years at Stanford before getting drafted again, you know, I'd pretty much be in almost the same position coming mm-hmm. out of college as I would coming out of high school. So, um, you know, there was all of those things to factor. Plus, I, I really wanted to go and play college baseball and have the college experience. Well, you had that experience. Tell us, uh, without giving away all the details, a little bit about college. You know, you're at Stanford, excellent program, excellent college. Uh, what was the experience like for you, though, as a guy? Well, it was, you know, it was great. It was a mixed bag, though. My freshman year, that minor injury that I had in high school turned out to be a little bit more significant and plagued me in my freshman year. I missed the whole year, had a, uh, exploratory elbow surgery to try to see what it was. They couldn't figure it out. So my baseball career was actually in jeopardy within six months of me being in college. And it was hard for me because going to college, as most people know, whether they play sports or not, you go to college, it's a whole new experience, exciting, but also can be overwhelming. And I spent my first year at Stanford, especially feeling like, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm going to do if I'm not playing baseball. Who am I? I'm around all these really smart, talented kids in class and school, as well as all these incredible athletes. So it was pretty humbling for me when I first got there. Thankfully, with some good physical therapy and some good training, I was able to get back on the field my sophomore year and played and got a chance to pitch and, and, and contribute quite a bit to our team my sophomore year. My junior year 
we uh, we went to the College World Series, and you know I was in the starting rotation on our pitching staff, and just had a ton of fun, and was a fantastic experience for me. Um, you know, some of my best friends in my life that I'm still close with are some of the guys I played mm-hmm. baseball with at Stanford. And, you know, as a junior, you become eligible to get drafted. Um, again, once you're a junior in college, if you go to a four-year school, I got drafted by the Kansas City Royals my junior year, um, actually when we were in Omaha at the College World Series and ended up signing with the Royals and, and went on to go play a few years of professional baseball after Stanford. I understand it. It ended a little too soon, about three years into your professional career. What happened? It did. You know, I went out to pitch one night. I was playing, and if anybody's seen the movie Bull Durham, which I know is now quite a few years ago, but um, I was actually pitching against the Durham Bulls. I was playing for the Wilmington Blue Rocks. <laughs> I did not know that was a real team. How about that? It's a real team. Now, that's a real team, a real league. If you watch that movie, and, you know, those, you have to be of a certain age to really remember that movie and appreciate it, but. You know, the, the characters play for the Durham Bulls in the Carolina League. I was actually pitching in the Carolina League for the Wilmington Blue Rocks, which was the Kansas City Royals' high A um, minor league affiliate at the time. And I threw one pitch and tore ligaments in my elbow, and that was it. I, uh, you know, the ball went about 54 feet, and I almost fell over. The pain was so significant. Um, you know, they took me out of the game. I saw the doctor the next day. They sent me back to California. I ended up having reconstructive elbow surgery, or what's more commonly known as Tommy John surgery on my elbow. Um, But unfortunately for me, because of the problems that I'd had over the number of years, I'd also torn some cartilage in my shoulder and sort of had developed a series of of different issues that even sort of three surgeries later, because we tried to do just about everything possible for me to come back, I wasn't able to make it back uh, to where I needed to be. So the Royals released me from my contract, and I ultimately retired at the age of 25 and baseball was over. You know, the the cold-hearted among us right now might say, you know what, get on with life, man. You know, it's it's a big universe out there. But the reality is this was your dream from the age of four and then certainly by seven that you wanted to play pro ball. You lose this, uh, no fault of your own. It's just, it's taken from you. You're 25. Yeah. You got to figure out what to do next. My, My Two questions. Number one is, well, maybe number two is, what did you do next? But first question is this, Mike. Um, how do you grieve that, man? How, how do you grieve the end of something that you had wanted so so badly? You know, it's hard, John. I, I, I don't know that I fully understood mentally or emotionally about grief at that point in my life. And because it's such a unique type of grief, there wasn't a whole lot of support, quite frankly. You know, what's interesting, I, I never ended up writing this book, and maybe I will someday, but one, the, when I was thinking about writing a book, the first time, one of the books that I wanted to write was this book called What Happens When You Don't Make It. Mm. And it was really going to be a book I was going to write for myself about my experience, but for anyone and everyone who's had a dream that has come crashing down, which is just about every human being on the totally. planet, right? But, and in some cases, it's done very publicly or very significantly. Or, you know, For me, from the age of 7 to 25, I mean, that was 18 of my first 25 years, I was focused on this one thing, and I was really good at it. And I was not just Mike. I was Mike the baseball player. So it was grieving the loss of the dream, but also the loss of my identity. Um, And it was, you know, what's weird looking back on it now, it was scary and painful and disorienting. There was a part of it that I felt, even at the time that I couldn't quite understand or define or didn't know what it was, that was actually liberating. Because as much as I did love baseball, there were parts of it that were hard and scary and there was a lot of pressure and there was a part of me that was like, "Ah, 
I could exhale and start to ask myself some deeper questions like, who am I really and what do I really want to do? And so part of what ultimately helped me in my own grief journey and figuring out what I wanted to do next was I saw some really great counselors and therapists who helped me a lot. I became passionately interested in my own personal growth, my own Mm -hmm. healing, and that actually, which started even when I was still playing, but intensified when I was so sort of lost and confused about what to do next, is what really inspired me to want to not only move my life in a certain direction, but I became very clear in that process, like, I want to try to help other people wherever they are in their journeys, because... It seems to me like, you know, here I was, even back when I was in college, I'm playing baseball, I'm doing well in school, I'm doing all the right things on the surface, but there were things going on inside of me. Like, I went through a really serious depression when I was in college, and having come from a family where there's a lot of mental illness, I was also like, wait a minute, I've been trying to achieve all these things on the outside, and I'm achieving them. How come I'm still struggling mentally, emotionally inside? Like, where do we learn about that? (laughs) Right. And that's, yes. that's what, what really got me inspired to like, I want to spend more time and energy focused on that for myself. And I want to try to inspire other people because with all the great, wonderful things we learn in school and we learn in sports and we learn in activities and whatnot, to me, it felt like there was a bit of a void about, you know, how do I heal and how do I grow and how do I change and how do I make peace with myself and with life and with the people around me? Well, man, you, uh, you're talking our language now, and I think you got a yeah. whole lot of people leaning toward their radio saying, okay, man, take us forward. What did you learn and what does it mean? So you, you brought up four or five heavy topics, but let's talk yeah. about um, what did you learn about healing? What did you learn about healing, Mike? Well, that it's, that it's multi-layered. And, um, you know, I think when I first, my focus early on, I you know went to doctors and I was trying to look for some physical healing. And while it, it didn't actually come, right? So they, they would tell me, do this and do this and do this, and the physical pain was still there. So I thought, well, maybe there's something more to it than simply just take this pill or do this exercise or don't do that. Or You know, that took me a little bit deeper into, huh, is there a connection between my body and my mind and my heart? And then what does it really mean to heal? What am I really looking for? And And, and for me, it was... It was interesting because some of the counselors, some of the spiritual advisors that I started to work with started to talk to me about things at a much deeper level that weren't just about what I was seeing on the surface. And that, for me, became this whole deeper exploration of myself and of life and of, you know, why am I here? Because Mm -hmm. the biggest realization, John, that I had when my baseball career ended, it wasn't, you know, when I looked back on the whole thing, as disappointed as I was, when I asked myself the question, if I could do it all over again, would I do anything different? The only regret that I had, the only thing I would have done different was I would have appreciated and enjoyed it more while I was doing it instead of holding my breath trying to yes. make it. You know, it's funny. I, I, another gentleman who sat on the Live Inspired couch was Mike Matheny. Matheny's the Cardinal manager these days. Yeah. But he's an all-star catcher himself and, you know, rose through the ranks of low A ball all the way to the majors. Yeah. But he said the exact same thing. And he learned that about halfway through his career. And he just wishes, yeah. looking back, that he would have been able to in, in, embrace and enjoy the moment rather than continually looking over his shoulder. You know, it's so interesting because, like, I've learned this lesson so many times. I've been writing and speaking about it for so many years. But it amazes me what a simple human phenomenon this is. You know, just over the weekend, 
I was, I had, the computer guy had come over to our office and was doing some things and I asked some questions and I don't know how you manage this in your own life, John, but like the photos and videos over the last 10, 12 years since we started having babies are just the amount of data and information trying to manage it and organize it. And so he sort of moved things around and was trying to give me a new system to manage it. But I ended up going back and was looking at all of these old photos and videos from just from the last 10, 12 years. And it was such an amazing thing to both appreciate some things but also, as I was talking to Michelle, my wife, about it, it's like, wow, remembering some moments. Oh, remember that? Oh, we were really in the middle of a stressful time or things were challenging financially or whatever. I would remember the story of the circumstance. Yes. But I would be watching me with my, you know, my girls who were 11 and 9 now when they were, you know, four and one and a half and just remembering some of the fun and the joy and even the challenge of it, but realizing that, like, the only thing I could have done anything differently in that moment would have been to enjoy it even more because life turns into as important as the moments are while we're in them. And they are super important. They literally become photographs and videos and memories from the past. And why do we waste so much time and energy worrying and stressing out about so much of the stuff that just in hindsight doesn't matter? Part of what you're talking about here is this also what you describe when you, uh, when you wrote the book, Focus on the good stuff. Yes. So how we have heard this so frequently, not only broadly, but specifically through this lens, our microphone here on the podcast. Right. Gosh, but doing this, Mike, actually following through and focusing on the good stuff and magnifying that message. Give us a few specifics on how we can actually step in and uh, and own the good stuff. Well, I think it's 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 a, an understanding and awareness. So just talking about it. I mean, again, there's so many aspects of life that I think the more we talk about it, the more we remind ourselves and each other. I mean, look, I've said from the beginning, for me, with my own work, one of the first motivations for me to do the work that I do is selfish in that I need to remind myself all the time. Mm -hmm. So I love asking one question that I ask all the time, John. I, I post this on social media at least once a week. It's on the voicemail in our office when you call as I ask the question, what are you grateful for? Mm. Because as simple of a question as that is, it like brings us into the present moment, it has us reflect on what we're grateful for. And in the reflection and sometimes even the expression of it, we have the impact of gratitude becomes real. And what's great is if I ask you what you're grateful for, it'll have you stop and pause and contemplate it and then respond to it. And then I get to do the same thing within myself. And that simple act, you know, this is something that for years I'll do this with corporate leaders and teams that I work with is that in a meeting, we'll just stop and I'll say, okay, let's just take a moment and go around and everyone share something that they're grateful for. And it literally stops everybody in their tracks. And no matter what's happening, it could be really intense and challenging and we're dealing with this conflict or trying to figure out how we're going to hit these goals. And it just has everybody stop and reflect and realize, wow, you know, even and especially when things are challenging, there's so much to be grateful for. And even when things are going great, mm -hmm. whatever that may mean, only really valuable to us if we actually stop to enjoy the moment. And, you know, doing this with your family. I mean, we do it sometimes if we, if we say a blessing or a prayer before a meal, which is wonderful to do. I've always laughed for years, you know, we do it at Thanksgiving. It's like, okay, let's go around the table and yes. everyone talk about what you're thankful for. And it's like, well, why don't we do that in the middle of April or yes. July or whenever? Why, why just in November on Thanksgiving? We could do it anytime. So it's about creating practices. You know, I've kept a gratitude journal for years 
and I write down just about every day. I miss a day every now and again, but when I go to bed at night or when I wake up in the morning or sometime when I'm quiet by myself, I will just write down some things that I'm grateful for as a practice, like exercising. Gratitude is a muscle that we got to continue to build, and the more we build it, the stronger it gets. And because of that strength, Mike, what are some of the benefits we should expect? I, I, you know, I, we hear a lot of folks talk about the power of gratitude, and we've seen a little yeah. bit of research. From your own findings and the work that you've done and the writings that you've been part of, what are yep. some of the real benefits of being a little bit more grateful for life? Well, there is, there is some really compelling research about what it does to our brain and our nervous system. So it literally changes, you know, it's like it takes about 8 to 10 seconds of an affirmative thought, but particularly focusing on gratitude, that can shift your brain chemistry and your body chemistry. So as a technique, like a stress management technique, looking out the window in the middle of the day, staring at a photograph of your family, just contemplating, purposefully contemplating something you're grateful for, it actually can physiologically make you feel better. Secondly, it also relationally, it builds up a reservoir of goodness in our relationships with each other. And when we both do it personally, but also with the people around us, what it then does is when inevitably the stressful, challenging, difficult thing happens or shows up that we have to respond to by spending enough time focusing on what we're grateful for, right? It's, it's again, like Mm-hmm. physically exercising our body that when we have to use it in a short burst, I know this is an athlete, we're able to do that much more effectively if we've actually put in the work to do a little bit of training. So it's kind of like mental and emotional training. I also find for myself that like when I do spend more active time focusing on what I'm appreciating, what I'm grateful for, I'm less likely to get caught in that trap of victimhood, mm-hmm. feeling like it's not fair. And it's, you know, I mean, and that I think it's easy for all of us to get caught there from time to time when things don't go the way we want them to, when it seems like we're getting a raw deal about something. But, you know, years ago, a mentor of mine said to me, my gratitude and victimhood can't coexist. Man, it's powerful stuff. You, um, you're speaking on a topic that I'm so passionate about. I also keep a gratitude journal. We have folks that are part of our like a training program, our community called In Studio, and we encourage them to journal every day, every single day on the question, why me? Yep. And not as a va- victim, but as a victor. You know, something yep. acknowledging the various things in life we're grateful for. I think it's so important. Mike, yep. your, your work has taken you not only through this process of focusing on what's good, but also on fully becoming who you were made to be. Uh, your your yep. second book, I think, let me, I have it in front of yep. me. Be Yourself, because everyone else is taken. Is that correct? Yep. Dude, so t- tell us about yourself, because <laughs> everyone else is taken. What, what, how can we be more fully ourselves? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, part of a lot of my work on gratitude then and appreciation also led me down this path of, okay, so it's, you know, you look, you and I both know, John, given the work that we do, it's like, it's one thing to be grateful or positive or appreciative, but are we doing that authentically? And also, what's the balance between, you know, there are things that happen in life that are challenging, that are painful, that are difficult, you know, in your life experience, in your life story, it's like, how do we actually authentically show up in life and experience what we experience, but choose to be grateful or positive or appreciative. And so the thing about authenticity that's so interesting is one of the ways to start being even more authentic in life and being more of ourselves is actually start to notice when we're not being authentic or Mm. when we're not being ourselves. And it's a bit of a trial and error process, if you will. It's also just 
a function of being conscious and aware constantly. You know, and I think it's painful too because once you're aware, you realize how frequently you are not John O'Leary Foley or Mike Robbins or the listener today. Exactly right, and it's and and it's it's a tricky thing because. There is a tendency, I mean, one of the traps that I have fallen into over the course of my life, and it still will catch me from time to time, is the trap of comparison, mm. right? And it's the, it's the sense, and this used to happen to me, John, when I was an athlete, first and foremost, because I was pretty good, but I, you know, I wasn't the biggest or the strongest, or the, you know, and I was constantly intimidated by a lot of the other guys that I played ball with. And I thought, erroneously, that something was wrong with me, right? I just thought, well, maybe I'm just insecure. Like, these guys all look really confident, I can feel my own fear and insecurity inside of me, and it would feel at times really, really intense and significant. I would look at my teammates or the guys on the other team, and I would say, how come they don't look the way that I feel? Mm -hmm. So I thought some, you know, I mean, and then, of course, it's that whole notion of, like, we compare our insides to other people's outsides, and they don't match up, and then we think that we're somehow inferior or weak or whatever. So actually, part of my passion around authenticity, John, came out of this idea that, like, I wanted to start telling more of the truth about how I actually was feeling inside. And I wanted to hopefully invite other people to share that as well. And it wasn't, and there's a difference, I think, between authentically sharing our vulnerabilities and how we're actually feeling than whining and complaining. Because those are different things. But when we can share genuinely who we really are, how we really feel, where we're really at, it's the acknowledgement of the truth a lot of times that will set us free. But the pretending like I've got it together, and this is one of the tricky things I think on our journey of success is that success, and I put that in air quotes, right? Whatever that means is that we think in order to get there, I have to be confident, I have to believe it, I have to walk in, you know, all those things can be true, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to have our fears and our doubts and our insecurities and our questions and all of the things that happen along the way. And so how can we consciously choose to live an inspired and positive life Part of it is by being able to acknowledge and really tell the truth with ourselves and ultimately with others on how we really feel and where we're really at. Well, man, looking back at your truth and where you are and where you've been, your last year, uh, man, it has to be the most difficult of your life. You, you uh, lost some people who are near and dear to you. So, if it, Mike, I know we're kind of wading into personal waters, but this is yeah. your heart, so I know you're open yeah. to it. Just tell our listeners who may not be as close to you as I am about some of the losses from your previous year. Yeah, well, I, you know, this last year, so my sister Lori died in 2016 last year um, of cancer, and she'd had cancer for four years. Um, she was 45 at the time, and, you know, the single mom of a then 11-year-old who's now 13, and, you know, my my mom died in 2011. My dad died back in 2001. So, you know, now with Lori's passing, you know, my whole nuclear family is gone. Mm-hmm. And it's been, it's been a really painful and a really potent experience for me, particularly over the last year and a half since Lori died, John, because, and anybody listening who's gone through loss and grief, I mean, I think every experience is unique every relationship when we lose someone close to us, it's, it's different for a variety of reasons. And as I've talked about over the years, my own experience with loss and with grief, what I've found in talking to a lot of people is, and I've experienced this very much, is it's incredibly uh, growth-inducing. And there's so much healing and transformation that can happen through even a really painful loss that I 
you know, I choose to be grateful both for the lives of my parents and my sister and for all they taught me when they were alive, as well as as sad as I get at times, as much as I may miss them, grateful for the lessons that I've learned even through their passing. Um, and, you know, it's been, and there are still moments, you know, a year and a half later since Lori died where it's just disorienting or I'll have a thought or a memory yeah. of my sister among many things fall. about her that was amazing. My sister, John, had an incredible memory. She remembered everything about everyone, and I could call her up. Lori, what happened in 1979 when we were the, you know, and she would know the story and would tell me. And there'll be moments where I'll have that thought, and I'll immediately go to grab my phone to call my sister and be like, i got to ask Lori, and then remember, oh, I can't call her anymore. You said that it's been an extremely hard time and one of great growth. For yeah. those of us in one of those hard times right now, Mike, and I would imagine that's a whole lot of us. I mean, I, I, yeah. I re- I'm convinced you're either in the middle of a storm, you're coming out of one, or you are about to sail right into another yeah. one. It's constant. So for yeah. those of us in the middle of one, what, what are some of the growth edges that you've uh, taken on since th- this most recent storm? You know, a couple things for me. It's, it's been a deeper um, reminder for me to ask for help, to reach out. Um, you know, I've been really blessed over the course of my life, John, to have an enormous amount of help, great mentors, incredible counselors and coaches I've worked with, people around me, and there have been aspects of this loss and grief in particular that I just had to throw up my hands at times and go, I don't know how to do this, this is hard, this is scary, this is painful. Um, you know, and I'm at a place in my life as a father and a business owner where I also have a lot of responsibility and a lot of expectation, as I'm sure you can relate with and many people listening. So it was just, it was and even still is important for me to be able to continue to reach out for support and see where there were places in my life where, oh, there's a big gap or a gaping hole where I could really use some support in this particular area. Let me just put that out there and see what or who shows up. And mm-hmm. it's, it's been really remarkable. Another thing for me has been you know, to give myself, and this was challenging last year, right when Lori died as well, because even though she'd been sick for a number of years, she got really, really sick at the end and passed a lot sooner than anybody anticipated, even all the doctors and everybody who was caring for her. Um, And I didn't really have much time and space in my life to, there was a lot to take care of, but also to grieve. And I went to lunch actually with a client of mine, this is an executive who I just had a meeting scheduled and it was a couple of weeks after Lori died and I, we'd canceled a bunch of stuff, but I decided I'll just take this meeting. And I sat down with her and I, I just shared with her, here's what's going on. And she proceeded to then share with me that she'd lost her brother a few years earlier. We ended up having this beautiful conversation. And she said to me that one of the things that her rabbi had told her right after her brother died was like, give yourself space and create space for you to grieve because it's not built into your life, it's not built into your schedule, and it, it takes kind of its own time, but create some space over the next months and even years to just allow mm-hmm. yourself to feel. And, and that's something that I took to heart and started to do, was just to schedule some time where I'd even go away for a day by myself with nothing on the calendar, as much as I hate to be away any more than I need to be from my wife and my girls. It was like, you know, Daddy needs to go away just to spend a day by himself. And that was hard to do, but really important for me to do because it allowed me to let a lot of those feelings come up and come out and come through me that needed to, instead of just pushing them down and moving on to the next thing. And, you know, 
one of the main challenges I find, and I, I appreciate the challenge, but like you, I go out in the world with the in- intention to motivate and inspire people. I mean, that's what my life's work is about. And there are times when it's like, wow, when I'm feeling a certain amount of heaviness or pain within myself, how do I bring that forth and be authentic and real about it, yet at the same time be aware of who I am and what I do? It, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting challenge to navigate at times. And there were times over the last year or so, and I have found that one of the ways that I do that is that I share, not to sort of dump it all over anybody, but I will share a bit about my own process and my experience and what I find, John, with that as I'm sure you do, is that it's amazing to me, even though it's my own unique experience and story, the more personal we are often, the more universal it is and the more people can relate to it. Yeah, the the words frequently uttered after we share something personal to a dear friend is the response, you too? You know, you too? So, uh, Mike, I I appreciate you sharing that about your sister and your parents, your grief, your journey, your growth, where you are and what you learned. You you have a new project in front of you today. I understand that you recently finished the manuscript for your fourth book. Tell yes. us the title. Tell us a little bit about what it's about. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's called Bring Your Whole Self to Work, and uh, I'm super excited about it. You know, it's we were talking, John, about this before we hit record or we started recording the podcast, but I, I just finished the manuscript and was actually supposed to write the book last year, um, but after Lori passed and everything happened, I just was in a place of... I just didn't have the mental, emotional bandwidth for the project, as excited as I was about it. But what I found actually writing the book is in the introduction of the book, I share some of what we were just talking about in some of my own journey through grief. And, and the book is really about how we can show up as authentically as possible in our work and how we can create environments within our teams and organizations and whatever roles that we play in that that are safe and conducive for people to being themselves and bringing all of who they are to work. Because look, the way we work these days, you know, it's not, I show up at nine and I punch a clock and I leave at five. It's, I mean, most of the jobs that most of us have don't operate that way. And even if they do, we live in a world now where we're constantly communicating and interacting with each other in the world and people from all over the world all the time for better or worse. And so what I've learned over the years of working with so many amazing organizations, big corporations and small businesses and nonprofits and government agencies and schools is that when the leaders and when the people inside of the team or that organization have a real personal relationship with one another, they may all not be best friends and hang out outside of work, which is great if that happens, but not necessary. But when there's that common humanity that's shared, it not only is a more conducive environment for people to enjoy working, they end up producing better results. They end up succeeding at a much higher level. I think of all the great baseball teams I was on growing up and in college and professionally. It's like when we really cared about each other, it made a difference. And I see this all the time in the business world that when people can actually bring themselves more fully, they're more liberated the team's more liberated and the environment is just on fire, as you would say. <laughs> right. That that brand is already taken, so you'll need to come up with a new catchphrase. But, I won't use that, but it just came to my mind since you and I were talking. <laughs> no, man. In, in the meantime, while you consider the catchphrase, where can folks learn more about the journey uh, of this book and where uh, and eventually when it's going to be released? Because I understand it's months out. So how can how can we stay abreast of changes? Yeah, well, if you just go to mike-robbins.com, that's, uh, that's my website, and so you can connect. You know, I have a podcast, which 
you've been nice enough to be a guest on um, called Bring Your Whole Self to Work. So I've been having conversations with people about this. I even gave a TED Talk on this particular topic last year, which is up there on the website. But, you know, you can find out all about it. Yeah, the book will be out in May. So I just finished uh, the draft of the manuscript. And as you know, there's steps in the process yes. before the, the publishing happens. But I'm excited about it. Mike, we are moments away from moving into the Live Inspired 7. Okay. Uh, but I, I always kind of like to sum up the entire interview with one question. So before we get to the Live Inspired 7, when people leave your audience or shut your book or turn off your podcast, how, how do you hope that you've influenced them? What, what, what's one thing that is different and better because of something you shared? You know, I think one of my primary intentions with everything that I do John, is to give people permission to be who they are and where they are and how they are right now. That it's not only okay, but it's beautiful. And that's advice that I'm constantly trying to give, but I'm also constantly trying to remember for myself, particularly when I get stuck. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, man, that's perfect. So the, the, the Live Inspired 7 begins with the first question, which is, Mike Robbins, what is the best book that you've ever read? Wow. The first one that popped to my mind is probably the one that had the biggest impact on my life at the time and that really got me on this path, and that's Richard Carlson's Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and mm. it's all small stuff. I understand you knew Richard a little bit. Uh, for those who yeah. never met him, what, what was he like? Unbelievable. I mean, the guy walked his talk and was one of the kindest, most authentically present and inspired human beings I ever met. And if you met him, you'd have no idea that he was a, you know, best-selling author, mega success. You would just think, wow, that's just such a kind, sweet, caring, loving human being. And uh, I'm so honored that I got to meet him and that he mentored me um, and wrote the foreword for Focus on the Good Stuff actually three weeks before he sadly <laughs> passed away back in 2006. Tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you with millions. Mm. What would you do with that newfound wealth? It's amazing. I was just thinking about this the other day because the, I was reading about the Powerball being up to like 600 or whatever. Right. <laughs> I started to have this conversation. Um, you got you got to you got to play to win, though, Mike. And I think that's exactly. going to get me and you in trouble. Right, right. <laughs> but um, I think. I mean, you know, there's a part that, like, the first part of it is, like, take care of everyone and everything that I could that's right close to me in my direct vicinity. Um, there's a number of people in my life and in the family that I think would, would greatly benefit from some financial support. But I think that for me it would just be – I've thought about this for many years, John. I don't think I would hardly do anything different than I'm currently doing with my life. I think that – I would simply just continue to ask myself the question, which I try to ask all the time, is how can I best serve and what's the highest use of my gifts? And I think if all the financial burden of managing and providing for the life that we have were eliminated, I just think it would be even more fun and easier mm -hmm. to be asking those questions and listening for the answers. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, man, if your house caught fire... And all living things and all living people are already out. You have an opportunity, to, Mike, to run in and to grab one thing that really matters to you. What would you grab? You know, it's, 
it'd be my computer. And because it has access to all of the photographs and videos, I mean, they're, they're backed up in other places, but you know, that would be the thing that came to mind right away. It's like, I want to make sure I know it's backed up to the cloud, so I'm sure there's some way to get it. But, like, I would grab the computer. No, man, Um, that's a very common answer. (laughs) If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day overlooking a beach with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to have a nice, long conversation with? Hmm. You know, there's a whole bunch of people, but the person that just popped to mind is Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) Hmm. Not what I was you know, expecting. Tell me, tell me about Alexander Hamilton and how you ended up on a park bench next to him. I just like many people in our country now. I've my family and I have become obsessed with the musical <laughs> Hamilton, and I've just found his life to be so fascinating on so many levels that I would love to sit with him right now and ask him more about his life and his journey. And also, if there's a way, if I'm talking to him in real time, I'd love his perspective on what's going on in our country right now. <laughs> Yes, he he probably would not be looking at Twitter while he was speaking to you. I, th- I think these probably guys not. were more polished than that. And he'd probably that. have some pretty interesting opinions about the whole thing, so yes. it'd be a fascinating conversation. What's the best advice that Alexander, Alexander Hamilton or anyone else from your history ever shared with you? So what's, what's the best advice, Mike, that you've ever received? I got some advice from a guy named Chris Anderson, who's a mentor and counselor I've worked with on and off for almost 20, 20 some years now since I was in college. And he said to me right before Michelle, Michelle was about eight months pregnant with Samantha, our now 11 year old. And he said to me, Mike, the most important job you have when your daughter is born is to teach her how to love herself. Mm. And I said, how do I do that? And he said, you love yourself and you let her see that. That's how you teach her how to love herself. Mm. Awesome. Two more questions, Mike. You've almost made it. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? (laughs) Relax. Um, Yeah, I would say, man, just relax. Like, there's a lot of amazing, fun, exciting stuff ahead, and you have way more within you than you have any idea. So just enjoy this as much as you possibly can. And the final question as we we finish the race is, it has been said— Mike Robbins, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Mm. The thing that just popped into my head was the Gandhi quote, be the change you wish to see in the world. Well, Mike Robbins, you uh, certainly are the change I think that you want to see in the world. I I love your authenticity. I love how you do show up. I love your grateful heart, your appreciation for others, for life, for work, for opportunities, and the way you share it with those around us. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much for your work, and thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a true honor. It's been my honor. My friends, that was Mike Robbins. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live Inspired. Well, I hope your seatbelt was on as a an all-star individual, a man whose baseball career may have been cut a little bit short due to elbow issues, tendon issues, shoulder issues, maybe life issues. Maybe his baseball career was cut a little bit short, but I think Mike Robbins' career opportunities and his ability to influence real change around him was magnified because of those injuries. 
that that is so frequently how things play out, my friends, in our lives as well. The the, the path that we have perfectly laid out for us changes. A roadblock shows up, a relationship falls apart, an opportunity is lost, the, the thing completely falls apart on us, and yet it's not the end. If we turn the page and take a deep breath and remain focused on what we have, not on what we don't, we can realize that we can put the left foot back in front of the right and then the left foot back in front of the right, keep moving forward and move into the best chapter of our lives. It's a lesson Mike Robbins learned along his journey. It's one that he's learned through opportunities and massive losses. And it's one that I think plays out in each and every one of our lives as well. I also thought one of the uh, key takeaways from this podcast was when his friend, a mentor, told him as his wife, Michelle, is eight months pregnant with her baby girl, that the most important thing, dad, that you can do is to teach this little one to love herself, man. The world's going to teach her that she's not worthy. you got to teach her how to love herself. So Mike's response was, uh, how do I do that? I don't even know how to change diapers. How do I, how do I teach a baby girl how to love herself? And the response was, love yourself, man. Be confident in who you are and what really matters and where you're going and why that matters. And uh, and let her know that you love yourself so that you can more fully, more wholly love her as well. I think it's great advice uh, for each one of us, not just the dads tuning in today, not just the moms, but for each of us in all of the roles that we assume in our lives. If you enjoyed this interview with Mike Robbins as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, do me a huge favor and share it with your community through social media, through emails, telling the ladies and gentlemen that you're checking out within the grocery lines about the Live Inspired podcast. Let them know that, yeah, there's some negativity out there. There are some challenges and some adversity out there. The media has that covered. But if you're looking for the other side of the story, Check out the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. He brings on some phenomenal guests, and they will remind you that the best of your days remain in front of you. Uh, I I think it's true on every episode. It's certainly true with Mike Robbins. If you want to learn more about this and how you can share, go to johnolearyinspires.com, johnolearyinspires.com. That's the website where we keep not only the archive of all of our podcasts, but all of my podcasts blogs. Uh, The book on fire is there. The videos that we've recorded are there. The the, the entirety of our work is there. So consider checking out JohnO'LearyInspires.com. You, by the way, my friends, in tuning into this podcast, you're part of a movement. We, We launched not even a year ago, and we are already well over 600,000 downloads. It's pretty unheard of, pretty terrific, and it's done and accomplished and successful because of you. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for telling others about the Live Inspired podcast. I love being here with you. I love considering you my friends and my family. And I love knowing that I'm not doing life by myself, that we are not doing this in a vacuum, but together we can move mountains. Thanks for being part of this community for this time. And until next time, this is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live Inspired. Live Inspired.